Welcome to Architecture, where you can get smart fast with in-depth interviews of leading technology vendors. I'm Ari Paparo, and I'm here with Bosco and James from Optable. Bosco, James, you want to introduce yourselves? Sure. Uh, hi, Ari. Uh, thanks for having us. My name is Bosco. Let's see. I've been in AppTech for close to 20 years now, starting at an ad agency where I worked on proprietary ad serving systems. This was back in 2006. So well before Google's acquisition of DoubleClick, which I'm sure you're intimately aware of, I guess you can think of me, uh, you know, in a nutshell as a systems software guy turned ad tech product person. I was lured uh, into ad tech uh, in spite of its imperfections, let's say, by what I saw at the time as foundational technology for the free and open internet. Prior to Optable, together with the same co-founders, I founded AdGear. So AdGear was an ad technology company uh, that developed uh, demand-side ad server and data management systems, which we licensed to brands and publishers. Uh, it was acquired by Samsung Electronics, their advertising division in 2016. So I spent a few years at Samsung Ads, uh, integrating the platform, growing the product and development teams in practice. And what do you do at Optable? So I am the CTO uh, at Optable. Uh, so Optable or Optable? I'm sorry. It's Optable. Optable. It's, it's actually, yeah, many people don't know this, but it's a real English word. It means to be desired. <laughs> okay. That's new to me. Uh, work in my crossword habit. All right, James, you want to tell us about yourself? What do you do at Optable? Sure. So James Prudhomme, I'm the chief revenue officer at Optable. Been in ad tech probably an equal amount of time, maybe a bit longer than uh, Bosco going back to the early 2000s. And in fact, I've known Bosco and the other founders of Optable for, for about that long now, going back to the early days of the Canadian digital advertising ecosystem when I was working at AOL and, and they were working at, uh, Bosco mentioned the ad agency that they were, uh, that they were working at. So I spent uh, most recently, you know, better part of seven years at Index Exchange leading Index's international business in Europe and APAC. Uh, I'm still based here in London, staying in London, even though I'm back working for another Canadian company. Uh, and back in startup land, but we'll get into a little bit about Optimal's go-to-market plans later, but, but definitely uh, planning to remain in London for the foreseeable future. Great. Everyone, everyone loves Canadian ad tech. It's its own, <laughs> its own little ecosystem. I've now worked for both Canadian ad tech companies. <laughs> There's a lot more to do. <laughs> so I think everyone has a very basic idea about what a clean room is. I know I'm using that phrase, even though, you know, maybe you want to differentiate but uh, I think we we understand the basics. Uh, but let's walk step by step through a use case and how you know maybe a brand and a publisher might interact with your platform. Can you, can you like walk us through at a very granular level how how people would use the platform for a given use case? Sure. So let me let me kind of start at a high level, and then we're gonna we can you know drill drill deeper mm -hmm. and unpack it if if you like. So. You know, first and foremost, Optable customers access private instances of the platform that we call collaboration nodes. These nodes will typically sit beside their marketing system. So, for example, their CRM, CDP, or data warehouse. Or in the case of publishers, they can actually be directly embedded on their sites and apps using these lightweight SDKs that we make available uh, and that are part of the platform. So the collaboration node software, what it does first and foremost is that it helps stitch together person and household data into a private identity spine. 
it then provides a set of user interfaces and APIs that enable the customer to query the ID spine to build audiences and also to configure and participate in various types of collaboration clean rooms with their partners. So the use cases are wide ranging. You know, they range from matching individual records for targeting, for example, or for data onboarding purposes to doing things like attribute transfers on matched data, uh, to privacy preserving analytics on overlapping user and household uh, attributes and events. And, you know, one thing I'll say just in terms of how we see the, the product and maybe how we, how we're different in, in terms of how we see clean rooms is that, you know, when we, when we were getting started, what we found was that the software systems that uh, exist to enable collaboration using data were all kind of primitive and clunky. And we wanted to build a system that's rooted in familiar advertising and marketing concepts and that removes this kind of cognitive overhead of thinking about data in terms of tables and rows and columns. And so we built the, the platform that we built enables the management and matching of people and households that are represented by this identity graph structure. But collaboration is anchored in familiar concepts of audiences and not necessarily SQL queries and things like left and right joints. Okay, that's a great overview. Let's let's talk about a very specific use case. Let's say I'm a brand and I want to target my users on a publisher's site. So I take my CDP data, which is keyed by, let's say, email address, or or is it also cookie or maids, and I put it into your system. Is that right so far? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Sure, I can right. I can sort of finish that equation if you'd like. So you have your mm -hmm. data in the CDP. You've already defined your audiences there, as you said, using you know, first-party identifiers. So you can have one or many. It could be email addresses and maids and device IDs mm -hmm. and, you know, your household-level IDs like a Roku ID or a Samsung ID, et cetera, et cetera. You can then make all of those identifiers addressable in our platform. Mm -hmm. um, and you can also choose to make certain traits addressable in the platform if you think that those are going to be useful to some of your partners, for example. Okay. So once you've made those identifiers addressable, you can then, uh, as Bosco said, choose to slice and dice them further and sort of filter them down further into very specific audiences that you want to be able to match on. You can append third-party identifiers if you are working with, you know, for the likes of UID 2.0 or some of the other popular third-party identifiers. We built very clear API hooks into those. And you can then go through the process of selecting a partner that you want to match with. Now, in the case that you mentioned, it's an advertiser matching with a publisher. So that advertiser has two choices at this point. If the publisher is already a customer of Optible, great. You just, you know, sort of select them from a list uh, and you can choose them as a match partner. But let's assume that they're not a customer. You can give your partner access to what we call a virtual node and they can very easily make their data addressable in our platform for a match with the advertiser's data. They can either do that through a, a lightweight UI that we've built or at its most basic level, we have an open source utility that they can also use. So what that means is that only one side of the match needs to be a customer of Optible right. uh, in order to start the collaboration, which we think is a pretty key differentiator. And it's not really the foundation of a very open approach that we've taken. So I want to clarify a couple of points. First one is that it sounds as though you don't yourself supply any graph. It's just the customer's graph matching in different ways. Correct. We don't have oh. uh, a truck in that race at all. We're not in the ID business. We don't have our own type of identifier. Got it. It's a good clarification. And the second related question is that one of the negatives, I think, or one of the things that people 
are concerned about with clean rooms is always match rates. And usually the answer to that is bringing in some other graph, like a third-party graph. In your system, is it up to the customers to license that third-party graph and bring it in? Yeah, we've certainly built all of the hooks and all of the mechanisms for for bringing that third-party identifier in, and it is within our vision to kind of make those readily available. But it is up to the clients to decide which one of those identifiers they may Mm -hmm. want to use. So we don't have plans today to offer an identity spine as part of the uh, product offering. Okay, great. Um, and now more clarifications. On the buy side, uh, or on the on the beginning of this conversation, um, I think, Bosco, you said each customer gets their own instance. Now, is that centralized in your cloud, or are you talking about putting it you know, within the customer's cloud or adjacent to their data warehouse in some way? Yeah, great question. So today, it's, uh, it's offered as a managed service that we operate. Mm-hmm. We do have different levels of isolation that we can support. So we run, you know, today in GCP, we can run in isolated accounts within or sub accounts, if you will, within GCP to isolate the connectivity node infrastructure itself. So that's, you know, that's how we run right. today. So part of what we do differently is that these collaboration clean rooms that you configure and create, uh, like James explained, we provide the ability for someone who's not a customer, for example, to match with someone who is. And the only way that can be possible is to allow that that other party to trust the actual software and the protocol that's used for matching. So that other party, for example, can download an open source utility that we provide, run it wherever their data is, whether that's on-premise or in another cloud environment. And so they're not, they're not limited to, to running like, the managed, like using the managed service or, or transferring data into Optable. They can kind of remain completely sovereign. Okay, let's talk about customers and use cases. So, uh, James, I, I noticed on your website, it seemed to be leaning towards media owners as as the primary customer base. Is that accurate, or are you also on the buy side? We're on both sides. So, uh, effectively, if you are uh, an owner or a custodian, as I like to call them now, of first-party data, then you are a potential customer for Optable. We've got slightly different flavors of the platform for publishers and for brands. But it's effectively the same system, the same tool. It's just got, there's a few little, you know, things that are turned off in the brand side that they don't really need, targeting APIs, SDKs, that sort of thing. But both sides are addressable. We see use cases, you know, both internal within the enterprise for for data sharing and data collaboration, and then external in terms of like brands sharing data with other brands, let's say retailers sharing data with CPGs. And in some cases that can look like data enrichment, telling uh, a CPG, who are their users that bought their product at the retailer within the last 30 days. The CPG can then turn around and match with publishers to go create audience segments based off of what they've learned from the retailer. So in the case where it's a media company or a publisher, are there are there any you know named case studies you could give um, or talk about kind of how, how they're using the product? Well, we can talk about La Presse, which is a fairly large publisher in Canada. And, you know, we can talk at a high level around sure. how they use the product. That'd be great. So I think, you know, some of, the, some of the example that we just talked about where sort of advertiser has first-party CRM file, let's say, made up of email addresses. La Presse has a certain number of subscribers. They can match those. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of the use cases we've seen there, which are really interesting, where they take that matched audience, in and of itself may not necessarily be huge. Um, But it's also very easy to export a list of IDs from our platform. The publisher can then go create a lookalike model to make a much larger audience based off of that seed and then 
you know, can go out and, and, and target that uh, on behalf of the advertiser. So that's, you know, one example of how our, our current publishers and current clients are using the system. And what about on the buy side or, or another segment, retailers or brands, any uh, other sort of named companies, or even if you don't have a named company, if you can just give us a specific use case? Well, retail media is a really big use case for clean rooms, right? So I think retailers, mm -hmm. because, you know, they have obviously, especially, you know, e-commerce retailers have a lot of PII, they have a lot of personal information. They also have purchase information, which they want to maintain as being very sovereign and they want to be very, very careful about that information, you know, being connected to other places, whether it's in the bid stream or otherwise, where it could potentially be subject to data leakage or compliance risk or that sort of thing. So when you're a retailer with a large first-party data set and a lot of purchase information, and you want to monetize those audiences, then being able to match with one or more publishers, um, and then being able to create this kind of curated, approved list of publishers on which you can run campaigns on behalf of your retail media clients, I think that becomes a really, really compelling use case for data clean rooms and especially for uh, data clean rooms like the ones Optimal offers, which allow for that sort of end-to-end -end activation. So as a retailer and as a provider of uh, retail media, you literally do not have to match your data with any external uh, identifiers in order to be able to actuate and realize the value of that. Who are the typical actual users within the organization and how technical do they need to be? So typical users for us uh, tend to be data savvy marketers. So folks who understand data, but they're not programmers. So they're not like data scientists. They're not writing actual queries. What we're seeing is that this type of collaboration is becoming more and more common and prominent. And so if it's something that only your data scientists can do, like it's a problem, right? Because you now you have to wait on the data scientist to write the query and do this bespoke thing. So we really try to build things that can be used by people who are familiar with ad tech, ad ops people, marketers, that, that type Got of it. persona. Thanks for listening. To hear the complete interview, subscribe at markitecture.tv.